Hey, welcome back. It's been a while since we listened to some news. Somebody's touch. See if they pronounce in jail yet. No. Violated gag, another tantrum. Trump keeps losing in every court. Desperation grows. Legal AF. If you want to prepare for the gas shortages in winter and save Thanks big on energy bills, K, then you man. need to hear this. This Legal AF. renewed attacks on Judge and Goron's law clerk are featured prominently in a brand new motion for mistrial <laughs> filed today by Trump in the New York civil fraud case. Is it a violation of the gag order against attacking the law clerk? Or does it just skate by? Is there any merit to the motion for mistrial? And what are the chances the trial judge and later the appellate court will rule for Trump as the case continues into its seventh week? And why did Trump pick Don Jr. to be its, his leadoff roadmap witness? And why did the judge declare that most of his testimony was irrelevant? The mystery of who leaked to the media, the Georgia Fulton County DA proffer videos of all those lawyers that got convicted and why it was done has been solved by a hearing today with presiding judge Scott McAfee on the district attorney's emergency motion for protective order. Why did someone confess during the video hearing? And what did Judge McAfee let slip about his inner thoughts about having to be the trial judge in the case? And earlier in the week, the district attorney revealed in a TV interview that she does not see her case against Trump going to trial any earlier than early spring, with no chance that it concludes before the presidential election. What does that mean for the timing of Jack Smith's D.C. election interference case, the Mar-a-Lago obstruction and espionage case, or even the Stormy Daniels hush money cover-up business record fraud case in New York? Speaking of the D.C. election interference case, we are full steam ahead with Judge Chutkin presiding as she gets ready to pick the jury on time for a March 2024 trial, while the D.C. Court of Appeals considers the special counsel's opposition to Trump's appeal to permanently block the gag order from applying to him to allow more violent rhetoric to continue. All of this and so much more that will pop into our head at the appropriate time when we see the record light on this midweek edition of Legal AF with your co-anchors, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman Ignifolo. Karen, D.C., Florida, New York, Georgia. How many of these criminal cases get tried, in your view, before the November election? One. That's what I, I say think. one, possibly two. But really one. We'll be lucky to get one. Yeah. And what's your, I totally agree with you. What is your, people think we planned this one. She had no idea that was coming. Uh, what is your second, if there was a second? It would be Alvin Bragg's Stormy Daniel election interference case. You and I, you know, they say people as they get to know each other and they grow old together, they start to look alike and sound alike. That's so right. I so totally agree with you. All right. Well, that's a good way. That's a good opener for our first segment. Let me just adjust my head, as our producer likes to say, line them up a little bit better, um, of our first segment. Let's talk about New York. Uh, we were going to start the podcast talking about Don Jr., but then, um, as often threatened, uh, the Trump side finally got around to filing a motion for mistrial. There was some clamor in the courtroom about a day or so ago and some wild speculation that they were talking settlement up at the front bench, as the judge Ben Goran likes to call his, his caucuses with the lawyers. And I made it 
clear from practicing here that I did not think that was a settlement discussion. If that was going to be a settlement discussion, that would take place in the court's chambers away from prying eyes as well as ears. Uh, but now we, we speculate that the, what was going on up at the front bench was a discussion about the motion for mistrial being filed and Alina Haba making some sort of representation that there was it would be very delicate they're going to very delicately raise the issues because the judge was concerned that they were going to violate the gag order by some of the things that they suggested they were going to raise. I did a hot take on this particular filing, and but now it's time for Karen to weigh in. Karen, you've had an opportunity to read the 30 pages or so with supporting affidavits. Got it right here in my hot little hand of the motion for mistrial. And who, who features prominently in it? Well, for me, it's two things. The concept I've never heard of and became a drinking game for me on my hot take of co-judge, that the principal law clerk is the co-judge. They fell in love with that term. They used it over and over again in the brief. It really has no real meaning to me. We'll talk about it. And, of course, front and center is a frontal assault on the law clerk by name, by political donations, by photo, uh, in order to argue that there's some sort of nefarious thing going on because, oh my God, the principal law clerk in New York sits next to the judge and helps them do their job, which is to maintain continuity and track seven, no, it'll be 14 weeks of trial testimony and evidence and thousands of pages as if they expect the trial judge to just keep it all in his head before he renders his opinion as the trier of fact. I might want my, my one last comment before I turn it over to you. The people on the Trump side who filed their affidavits trying to argue like they were some sort of experts about New York procedure don't know what the heck they're talking about. They've never tried a multiple week trial in front of a judge in the New York Supreme Court because if they had, and I have, you would know that he needs help in keeping track of all the evidence and all the record, the testimony, the transcript, and and that's the role of the principal law clerk. Karen, what did you make, give your spin and your hot take here about the filing, and then what do you think the odds are that either Angoron and or the appellate court is going to find a mistrial because of the issues raised in the motion? Yeah, so let's just remind people what a what a motion from this trial is, because there are different motions that that the defense will make. One is a motion for a directed verdict at the end of the government's case, uh, which is made after all of that evidence is put on, um, and then they they say, "Look, there is no evidence against me. Can you dismiss it?" But another motion that you can make at any time if you are a defense attorney is a mistrial motion and what and you what you're basically saying is something went amiss that's really not a play on words i just made that up but it really is saying something is isn't going right something is prejudicial uh and that the trial something happened during the trial that makes it so that it cannot go on something just re really inappropriate now i can't get a fair trial you can also get a mistrial if if somehow for some reason someone gets sick or a jury can't reach a verdict, there are many reasons for a mistrial, but it means the trial has to end for whatever for whatever reason, it can't go on and you either, it's either dismissed with prejudice or without prejudice. And so here they finally did the mistrial motion that they said they were going to do. And they basically are saying this case should there should be a mistrial okay so this this particular trial shouldn't continue and 
uh, and it should be with prejudice. And it's because the judge and the clerk are biased against Trump. And that's the kind of long shot legal um, legal maneuver that they're hanging their, their hat on. Um, and, you know, look, they're basically asking the judge to say that the judge is biased and that his clerk is biased. So, of course, that's never going to happen in a million years. Whether or not they have made a sufficient record for an appellate court, uh, I highly doubt they will see that as well. I think the judge has bent over backwards to uh, be lenient in terms of giving a lot of leeway to the defense who has now started presenting their case. And I think the judge will have shown there, there were lots of objections that the government made that the judge overruled in favor of Trump and the Trumps, et cetera, the defense. And I think there will be sufficient record that um, that the judge and the clerk were not biased against them. But, you know, interestingly, what, what really stuck out here um, in my mind was the fact that this mistrial motion that they made really seemed to have ad hominem attacks, again, on the clerk and gratuitous naming, including with photos of the clerk, which, you know, my first reaction was this is clearly a violation of the gag order. You know, that the gag order that, that don't forget, Trump has already been, um, already been found to have violated twice. And one of the times he was actually found not credible. If you remember, he, he went outside and he made a speech about, about the person sitting next to the judge, you know, and um, that was clearly a violation of the gag order. And and the defense attorney came in and said, no, no, they weren't re referring to the law clerk. They were referring to the witness. I think it was Michael Cohen at the time. And the judge said, uh, no, 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 put, I want to put Donald Trump on the stand under oath. And he did. He testified under oath. He said he meant Michael Cohen, not law clerk and the judge found him not credible and fined him like fifteen thousand dollars i think total in these fines um but it doesn't matter they they are they don't seem to think that the gag order uh applies to them and they went on and on about how the evidence of bias is, is tangible and overwhelming and it has tainted the proceedings um and you know look they, they went back into a, a high school alumni newsletter and they looked into um, the law clerks uh political donations which interestingly i thought when i first saw that you know law clerks aren't supposed to give uh, political donations but apparently um she had there's an exception because she's trying to uh get she's trying to run for judge and so you know apparently she's allowed to do that now in new york if she's running to be on the ticket for a judge it's almost all democratic so it wouldn't be surprised if because new york's very democratic i wouldn't be surprised if um if that were the case if but you know i don't know that that's i don't see how anything they wrote in there would be a, a basis for a mistrial and i don't think that the i don't think that the appellate courts who all have clerks by the way that help them i don't think they're going to take lightly to this what about you what do you think yeah i don't think the appellate court is going to take kindly as you said to judge angoran or our entire i'm going to i'm going to defend now you and i are new york bar members the entire new york state supreme trial court system is under attack by outsiders who don't know a darn thing about how things work here chris geisel works in florida alina Hava is a new jersey lawyer that works out of a regency 
uh, co-sharing space in Manhattan. It's not her primary office. Um, and so she's not a New York lawyer. She doesn't like head down to 60 Center Street on a regular basis and ply her trade. And Cliff Robert, the other lawyer that I think they lean on for New York practice, practices out of Long Island. Nothing wrong with Long Island. It's just not Manhattan. And the fact that they don't understand the role of the principal law clerk in a long bench trial where the judge is the trier of fact to manage the documents, to even forget manage the documents, as I said in my hot take, to go further, to say to the judge in terms of a human being, not artificial intelligence, but real intelligence, to say to the judge, that thing that Don Jr. just said this week doesn't comport with what he said two weeks ago when the New York Attorney General had him on the stand, and here are the two transcripts that show the mismatched judge that's not advocacy. That's not co-judging. That's being a proper law clerk, just like with my law clerks working for me. And I'm in a courtroom because it takes a village to put on a trial, let alone decide a trial, hands me the right document at the right time for the right witness. It's not, oh, the Michael Popak's law clerk is co-lawyering. No, they're doing their job to assist the professional. These are power professional positions. And the law clerk has a defined role that's completely different than in most places. And a lot of, as I said on a hot take, federal court, they have law clerks who generally just came out of law school or recently had a practice. They're not usually members of the bar, and they work for a couple of years for that particular judge. They write a lot of the orders. It would be the equivalent of you and me in federal court saying, we object to the law clerk for the federal judge writing the first draft of the order. The judge should be doing that. Oh my God. And making everything that's ordinary and mundane sound nefarious, which is what they're doing here in their attacking brief. And I, I agree with you. I think that the ridiculous criticism of how Angoron is running his courtroom, consistent with New York practice, the principal law clerk is different than in most states here in New York. Every principal law clerk is a lawyer. This principal law clerk was a senior trial lawyer for the uh, Corporation Council of the City of New York, meaning she was the municipal lawyer doing civil litigation. She's very skilled. She didn't get the judgeship this time. She'll probably, based on Donald Trump, will probably give her enough um, brand uh, pump that she'll get the election next time. But they're not, I haven't observed a darn thing that's that's inconsistent with my experience in these courtrooms. and. And they're, but everything to them is, oh, she sits next to the judge. Every staff sits next to the judge. Could be the bailiff, could be the deputy, could be the clerk, could be the law, the principal law clerk. They all sit there. It doesn't make them a co-judge. That's what, that's, he's not like, he's not sharing his chair. There's another desk up there that was built for a reason. And so when the first department gets this, it's going to be a whole lot of, well, I'll use an example from my own career. I once had a judge who, who, with my opponent, who loved this one piece of evidence in this case and fell in love with it and kept bringing it up at every hearing. And finally, at summary judgment, they lowered the lights and they put on this presentation, this PowerPoint presentation featuring this key piece of evidence, sort of like the attack on the law clerk. And then they were all breathless about it. Oh, my God, judge is the worst thing. And the lights came up. And the judge, like Judge Angoron, looked at my opponents and said, tell me that's not your entire case. Tell me you have more than that. And you could just hear the deflation. It was like somebody popped a balloon. In our, and they ended up losing the trial. This was a pre-trial, like, like now, like a pre-hearing uh, pre issue. 
the first department is going to hate the attacks on the law clerk and on the judge and it's going to deny this and nothing is going to stop the completion of this trial sometime before christmas and then the person they're attacking the two people they're attacking who are not going to get replaced are going to write the decision likely as you and i talked about last week to nail trump for at least five out of six of the remaining fraud counts and then take away his buildings his real estate his houses and his money and so i don't think this is a great place to be if you're the if you're the if you're the defendant to be attacking the judge and then hoping you get a reversal from the first department or ultimately the court of appeals the highest court in new york uh, based on something this judge did wrong if you're banking on that you are going to lose your company I have a question, <clears throat> Popov. Sorry, a little frog in my throat. Um, I have a question. You said I have. You said you started this with. I have to defend our New York court practice. So unlike me, who's really spent their career in New York, you have you practiced in Florida and other places. Are you saying that that the practice of law clerks really aren't? I just assumed that's everywhere because that's so entrenched and ingrained in New York practice. I just assumed that's what all courts and judges no. do. Is that not? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. I learn, so I learn something every episode. I, I'll give me too from you. I, 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 um, I'll give you an example of Florida because I practice a lot in Florida. I practiced there for 20 years and practiced here for 30 years. And so Chris Kais and I are sort of, you know, have a similar background in that. In Florida, in the trial level, there is no principal law clerk. There is a, there's no clerk. There's no, most judges don't take on a clerk from a law school. They have what's called a judicial assistant or a JA. They are a paralegal or administrative person that is like a it's like an air traffic controller, controls all the scheduling and the briefs. And you gotta make sure you're on the right side of the JA, or you're not gonna get that emergency hearing that you need, or you gotta get that brief in to the judge and it's a little bit later, it's missing something, and they and they are they're the gatekeeper for the judge. They, but, but other than a different title, what is the difference? In other words, it's, it sounds like it's they're not writing. Well, they're not. Well, they're only doing the administrative things that I just outlined. The J.A. in Florida is not writing first drafts of opinions, is not sitting with the judge and handing notes in generally and saying that guy there, he said something different three weeks ago. You know, the judge is sort of on their own and they don't rely on the J.A. for that in federal court. It's a little bit closer, you know, as you know, in federal court, the law clerk, which is not a lawyer, is usually a law student who just graduated and has this plum position that, you know, that they want this federal clerkship. Um, they do, they, they take notes during all of the hearings or trials. The judge will often ask them, like Judge Angoron is doing at a break or even during the trial, that last comment that that person, is that consistent with what the appraiser said two days ago? Wasn't there a document? Oh, yes, judge, hold on, there was an exhibit. That's the clerk. And the clerk will often write the first draft of the of the uh, decisions by the judge. And, so, and I know a lot of law clerks, and they will tell you very little of what I wrote got changed by the judge. He'll say, I want the ruling to be in favor of the plaintiff on this issue. Go write the, go write the decision. And they write the decision, and then the judge says, okay, his major or her major addition to it is adding the signature. So that's the federal law clerk system. New York is sort of a hybrid. The principal law clerk is not a co-judge, but handles almost like a federal magistrate, handles a lot of the discovery and pre... You rarely see your judge until way late in the case on some major issue. Until then, your quote-unquote judge 
is your principal law clerk who meets with you, who sits and tries to decide on discovery disputes, about deposition scheduling, very little gets through to the judge except major, major issues. But if you don't treat that person like they are a judge, and a lot of them become judges, that is a stepping stone in New York to becoming a judge, principal law clerk. I'm in front of a judge right now in the commercial division. Her last job was principal law clerk. So they have a unique role that's sort of federal magistrate, sort of federal law clerk, a little bit administrative but not co-judge. And so all they're pointing out is their ignorance, the Trump side, about what the role of that position is in a civil practice or even criminal in New York State Supreme Court. Did I get that? Did I answer that? I you that. did. No, it's fascinating, actually. It's fa- I find it fascinating having practiced in multiple jurisdictions around. But it is unique. I mean, if people who don't know Principal Law Clerk New York just don't get it. And they don't want to get it. They want to point out the obvious. You know, it's like the old... Um, Casablanca, you know, when the uh, when the uh, when they were astonished that there was gambling going on in the casino. Oh, there's gambling going on. You know, same thing here. If any New York lawyer worth his salt standing next to these two, he would say, you can't make these arguments. All you're doing is commenting on normal garden variety New York practice. Exactly. Yeah. So so much other things have been going on in this case, too, this week. Yeah. Talk about Don Jr. What you think about six hours of hearing about how grandpappy Trump built brothels in, uh, in Canada, in the, uh, in the Yukon, uh, who cares? He, you know, I'll start it this way. Don Jr. For me disqualified himself as a, as a precipient witness with knowledge about anything relevant to the case, which is a defined time period and the use of fraudulent or cooked statements of financial conditions by his father. Cause he kept saying, I don't know what about, Oh, that's why I hire other people. I don't, I wasn't involved with that. I didn't know it. I don't know how much that's worth. I wasn't involved with the appraisal. So what's he doing being the number one witness uh, which is usually your best witness, your roadmap witness. Why him and how effective was that, Karen? Well, I think they wanted to try to charm the judge and get out all the things that, that Trump Sr. wanted to get out but was unable to because uh, it was largely irrelevant to the case, most of what, what Don Jr. did and said on the stand. And, but the judge allowed it. He, the judge said, you know what, I'm letting them try their case. I'm going to let them put in as much as they want to put in. And I think they're going to be hard pressed to say that he was biased against the Trumps or against the defense, given how much leeway he gave them and how much irrelevant stuff that they gave him. I'll start by saying he is creepy AF. Okay, I I read about what the way he's he thinks he's charming, but in the grossest way. Okay, in like he apparently he said to the he said to the sketch artists who are like the nicest. I I, I know most of the New York sketch artists. They're the nicest women. They work really hard. And he walks up to them and he's like, "Hey, you know, make me look sexy." I'm like, "Ew!" Like, why do women have to deal with that? Why do women have to like? hear men talk like that to them as if that's somehow charming and another time use the sexy word again another time i can't remember in what context because i was so grossed out by by him he's just so like just creepy you know but anyway apparently he was quite charming and you know that the judge thought he was he was uh, a showman if you will but let him do what he wanted to do and he was like a commercial for for his family he was you know my father's an artist my father can 
can take a swamp and see the vision. My father invented the luxury apartment building and invented combining hotels with with apartments in the same building and putting gyms in there. I mean, maybe his father did. I don't know, but you know, he's a visionary and and he invented everything. And, and the judge let him do it. I mean, I thought it was a little, you know, it, it was it was telling that there that one of the things they put into evidence was was their marketing materials that had lies in it you know it had that that 40 wall street was i think 73 stories high when it's only like 60 something like 61 or 62 stories high something like that like they just they lie so much they can't keep track of them they don't even know what are lies anymore because just everything they do is so is so just off the top of their head however however they want to do anything and you know it, it, it's just interesting how how it's clear that that the way he just reveres his father and i just again i don't know how that really helps the case very much other than it was much more of the finger pointing towards others you know why well, nothing to do with it if there were if there are mistakes it's the experts that that relied on it but you know look the meat and potatoes part of of the trial is also starting to happen right i mean they put on a uh what the, an expert witness today um you know the um his name is Whitcoff or something like that. He's like this big, huge New York real estate guy who who met Trump in the in the eighties, and I guess Trump didn't have any money, so he bought him a sandwich. I don't know. They've, he's he's every building in New York, especially Lower Manhattan, uh, where where I'm very familiar with that area. He, he apparently is the guy who who built everything. Right? He's like the rival Trump in New York, but unlike Trump. I've never even heard of him. I don't know his name. I can't even remember his name. You'll, you'll, I'm sure, add he, it. Cause he's the, by the way, he's not that big. He also was a lawyer that represented Trump back in the day. All right. Well, what's his name? Whitcoff. Whitcoff. Oh, I just can't right. Yeah, you just got to remember. He's not, that, he, he's not that big. He thinks he's that. He's not that big. Didn't he, doesn't he like own the Bullworth building or something? I mean, no, that's I mean, pretty he's big. like a little, a little mini Trump, but. Yeah, but unlike Trump, his name isn't everywhere. Everything, you know, you can't watch it. Like it, back in the day, you, every building had the name Trump on it. Every park had Trump on. Like Trump, like cleaned up the friggin' the freeway and had said, you know, this part of the freeway is, you know, cleaned up by Donald Trump. He I wants remember his that, name. Henry Hudson. <laughs> yeah, he, exactly the highway. He wants his name everywhere, and Whitcock is seems to be quite different than that. But you know, he started going into. You know the, the nuances of valuating assets and how it is more of an art and not a science and how you know and and judge Angoran apparently he was quite charming he has a thick new york accent he comes across as very credible and you know and it, it appears that judge Angoran was really listening to him and, and thought you know i want to hear what this guy has to say because he does seem to have a lot of information that could be useful on how it's done in practice uh, but you know, interestingly, and and you know, we'll see we'll see what happens um, when we get to read the transcripts of the cross when it happens when it happens later. It'll be interesting to see how he's crossed because I am sure if I were the attorney general, I would say things like, okay, yeah, you know, maybe some people can some people take this into consideration while other people take this into consideration. But but what about putting? actual details that are outright wrong when you're making the determination like you can't get around that that's that's the part of this that really drives me crazy like at one point that he, he was being questioned and what he basically said was if you have a statement of financial condition and it has two properties on it and in one you 
make a lot of money and in one you lose a lot of money, they wash each other out. And so then therefore it doesn't matter if it's one's wrong and one's right, they wash each other out. And Judge Inquiry was like, do you have any evidence of that? Can you show me any proof of that? And you know, he was sort of trying to dig into that a little bit, which I thought was which I thought was sort of interesting. But the cross examination of him I think will be very, very telling because he I really think he's going to have to at the end of the day, even if you value you consider valuations done with this mix of information instead of that mix of information no matter what it has to rely on accurate accurate information right like square footage you know has to be accurate when you're doing the math or you know and, and or other other numbers that were objectively objectively wrong so I, I i do think that they're starting to put witnesses on that are actually substantive unlike don jr who i don't think was that substantive what about you what did you think well i think you have to start with the um you have to start from the place of where judge angoron is the new york attorney general jumped up and down and said why are we even putting on experts you judge have already determined before trial that there was persistent fraud and the books were cooked already um, and the only issue was intent and the, none of these witnesses, whether it be an appraiser or a fellow developer who used to be the lawyer for Donald Trump or um, an accountant or an insurance person, is going to be able to get into the hearts and minds of the critical issue in the case, which is intent. So why are we bothering doing this? And the judge didn't say they were wrong. He just said, is this the hill you want to die on? Why don't I just let it in? Give it the credibility or the weight that it deserves. And if it's, I'll keep them on a short chain in terms of relevancy, but do you really want to give them a reversible error issue um, to raise on appeal and do this trial all over again if you're wrong? And the New York Attorney General sat down. In other words, the judge signaled, let me handle this. I'm the gatekeeper. It's my trial. I don't have a jury to worry about. You know, experts in front of judges is different than experts in front of juries. You don't want an expert in front of a jury on irrelevant issue because they'll just blow their mind and they'll be distracted from what they need to do, which is to apply the facts to the law as charged by the judge. But when you're a judge, you know, you got your big boy and girl pants on and you're like, I'll handle it. So he said, so let, let it all in. I'll keep them on. I'll keep them on track on anything that I think is relevant. And the judge has already said to the New York attorney general on two occasions, um, do you really want to die on this hill? For instance, they raised the issue of Don Jr. Why is he testifying at all about things that are outside the time period and not relevant to the judge's fact finding, which is what he's doing now as a trier of fact, about properties and the years that are relevant to the, I almost said indictment, to the um, complaint or the petition in the case. And why is he talking about grandpappy Trump building brothels in Yukon in the 1900s? And the judge said again, do you want to miss trial on this, on this issue? Why don't we just let him talk and I'll deal with it. And then later when there was an objection that was raised, I think yesterday by the, by the Trump side, by Keis, by Chris Keis, who stood up and said, why do they get to bring in some issue about 40 Wall Street, one of the buildings at issue? And the judge turned to Chris Keis and with his withering style said, I just listened to an entire morning of irrelevant information from your client, Don Jr. Really? You're going to argue relevancy in front of me, which is a quick flash of what's going on in the judge's mind. 
I don't think any of this charm offensive, trying to reposition the case, trying to get the judge on theirs is going to work. This, this cement is hardening quickly from 25 witnesses for the government, for the, for the uh, state, the, the state attorney general, all of the documentary evidence and the judge's 30 page decision on summary judgment. It would take not just a Hail Mary, it would take some bombshell evidence that doesn't exist and a witness's testimony that will never be created in order to turn the tide on this case. What if they could cut, what if one of the yeah. bankers though that gave them these big loans off the bit misinformation came in and said, we never relied on that. It wasn't material. It had nothing to do with our decision. We wanted to go into business with Trump. Don't you think it could impact counts two through six? It won't impact count one or the damages, but don't you think that could impact count two? two but didn't we six? do this already? We, the New York Attorney General, we, <laughs> didn't, didn't this happen already? The New York Attorney General called in Deutsche Bank's banker and said to them, how did you make the loan? They said, well, there were two requirements. One of them was, everybody's excited in the city today. So there are two requirements. One was that Trump keep a $2.5 billion net worth. And the other one is he have, he have a certain amount of liquid assets and, and all of that. And that went back and forth with the texting with Ivanka. Um, and yes, they said, we'd like to do business with Donald Trump, but the underwriters, which are the ones in the back of the bank that make the decisions about loans, not the bank. Look, the bankers are salespeople. You and I have dealt with them in our own personal life and also, you know, with cases and they can sell ice in winter. Okay. They're great. But then they got to deliver that loan package to an underwriter who's got, you know, who's got uh, compliance and control issues and a committee that has to approve the loan. And, you know, it's not we're not talking about local schmokel banks. You just go in and go, oh, I'm Donald Trump. Can I have money now? I mean, there's a whole process for this. I just don't think they're going to find that banker if they had that banker that was going to say that this didn't matter what he told us. We didn't need financial statements we didn't need personal net worth we didn't need liquidity his name was enough that would have been witness number didn't one trump promise these bankers where are why aren't they exactly. witness number one why is it don jr talking about the yukon yeah. and doing like he's he's got a like he's doing a bus tour in hollywood pointing out buildings shiny buildings that his father did i mean why is that witness number one you and i practice trial law it's primacy and recency. You put your best witness on first. You put your second best witness on close to the end, and you sandwich everybody in the middle. Best witness is Don Jr., the one, the sink of fan. I mean, what, what, did, how, what was this, the, the, the selection process? Who's going to kiss daddy's ass more? Well, Ivanka won't come back from Florida, so who's left? You knew it was going to be Don Jr., there's no bigger ass kisser in that family than Don Jr. He fancies himself another Donald Trump, except he's well, he's not grosser because Donald Trump is pretty gross. I called him smarmy. You hit the nail on the head with your description. He's yuck, disgusting. You know, I got to take a shower every time I do a hot take about Don Jr. And I don't mean that in a good way. So, so. Um, and where's Tiffany in all this? You know, she went to uh, law school. She went to Georgetown Law School, right? My alma mater. Where's she in all of this? Why isn't she out there defending her? I'm just saying. Tiffany's first thing she's going to do as a lawyer is do a name change. She's going she's gonna to be, isn't her mother Marla Maples? She's going to be yeah. Tiffany Maples at the rate we're going. Yeah. If, you know, if that whole one. And then I loved in the cross-examination of Don Jr., by the way, speaking of name change, where they, they did what you and I do when we want to show strength. It, 
They almost did, no questions, Your Honor, which indicates that they didn't. He didn't lay a glove on our case. They said very brief cross, Your Honor, mm-hmm. and all the cross was wasn't there at a golf course. Wasn't there one of your holes, the 18th hole? Didn't it fall? Didn't it fall into the ocean? Didn't it fall into the ocean? And he was like, yes, yes, it did. And isn't there a Hawaiian property that's spending millions of dollars to take the Trump name off the property? Yes. And it was like, I mean, you know, they picked the five things that made them laugh the most at their lunch break, uh, which I love, which is another way to signal this guy didn't do a darn thing. To, to us. And I, I, I want to watch Cross because you and I'll do it next week or the end of the week. I want to see what they do with this appraiser who's the buddy. Other than you used to represent Donald Trump as his lawyer, right? Right. Okay. And so you're here not, you don't have any knowledge factual as a fact witness about the intent of Donald Trump when he cooked the books, which has already been determined by the judge, right? You have no knowledge, no information. You can't comment on that, right? Right. And so you're just here to try to teach the judge about New York development and appraisal process. Right. Right. That's that's all you're here you're about the art of it. Right. Right. And they're going to do the same thing with the insurance guy. You're just here to tell, teach the judge about how insurance is, is obtained. Right. I mean, just sort of shrink them down. Boo, you know, the honey, I shrunk the expert. And that, that's and that's what you do. You know, going back to the creepy comment, I just because I have to, it, we have become just our society. We're so conditioned, and but this was like twenty years ago. Men used to talk like that, right? It says twenty twenty three, almost twenty twenty four. I don't know any men who still talk like that. Can you imagine a woman like? Can you imagine Salty? If I said to Salty, "Hey, Salty, make me look sexy," he'd be like, "Gross! Get this creep out of here!" You know, like. <laughs> Women don't talk like this ever, and men used to, but they don't do that anymore. Like, who, where, what planet is he living in? You know what I call the court reporter at any room when I enter, or anybody there, like that happens to be a woman. I've done it since the top of my career, even though it's going to sound a little old timey. Madam court reporter, not their name. Not, I don't know them, but they have a role in our justice system, and they, they deserve respect. So it's always Madam Court Reporter, should we take a break now? Do you need a break? Because you're the one banging away on your equipment there. No, you don't go over and like try to date the, the, uh, the, the sketch artist, or like you said, breathe on them in order to make them look make me look handsome and sexy. Like you said, I can't even get it out. But um we, this isn't the last thing we'll talk about, about Donald Trump and all of his smarmy kids uh, that are going on. Another four or five weeks of this, and we'll cover it here on the Midas Touch Network and on Legal AF. We're going to turn next to talk about Georgia, big developments in Georgia, some new things, new breaking things that happened even since we've been on the air that we're going to talk about with Fawny Willis not taking any guff. That's a legal term from the uh, from the defense or any of the defendants, and then we'll we'll uh, we'll also talk about, of course, DC election interference case with Judge Chutkin as she moves that case towards trial in March, and the DC Court of Appeals considers the gag order whether it's going to be reinstated, and if so, in what fashion. But first, this is one of my favorite times of the podcast. Here's a word from our sponsors. Lomi is the only appliance that prevents food waste from stinking up your kitchen and polluting the planet. Now that I've invested in a Lomi, it's changed the way I deal with my food waste. Lomi is the biggest innovation in the modern day kitchen since the dishwasher. Lomi has helped me turn my home into a climate solution. 
Now I can transform my organic waste into nutrient-rich loamy earth that I can feed to my plants, lawn, or garden instead of sending it to the landfill. And as a result, I can help the environment and make my life easier. In just four hours, Lomi transforms almost anything you eat into nutrient-rich plant food at the push of a button. It's smart, simple food recycling that fits my space perfectly. Cut the chore of doing the trash in half and eliminate bugs and odors in your kitchen. And here's a bonus. You get to feed your lawn and garden with an all-natural fertilizer that you just created out of your own food scraps. All my food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers I forgot in the back of the fridge can go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food at home. I learned that food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to landfill, I'm helping do my part for the planet. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash LegalAF and use the promo code LegalAF to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash LegalAF and use promo code LegalAF at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this video. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics and makes temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver infused fabrics inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long. So you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than sheets used by some five-star hotels. Miracle sheets are the perfect gift for your spouse, friends, or family who doesn't want better sleep and luxurious feeling bed sheets. And since these come with three free towels, you get two gifts in one, just in time for the holidays. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts and acne. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash legalaf to try it today or gift it to someone special this holiday season. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Save over 40%. And if you use our promo legalaf at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's back to the 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash legalaf and use the code legalaf to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash legalaf to treat yourself, a friend, or loved one this holiday season. Well, we're back <laughs> off of those ad reads. Okay. Thank you to our sponsors. Couldn't do it, literally could not do it without them. Let's talk about Georgia before we launch into what we thought was the latest news. I'll just do two little quick updates. Um, I did a hot take a while ago about um, Harrison Floyd, who is uh, who was the chair of Black Voices for Trump. 
he was the guy that couldn't get out of jail originally on bond because he couldn't find a lawyer when he got indicted. And then we also learned that he was up on charges for assaulting a federal officer when he was being served with a subpoena to appear in front of a grand jury for Jack Smith's D.C. election interference case. You know, that guy. And um, and then he's just he spent the last two months or three months using social media to bash Fawny Willis, attack her appearance um, and then go after witnesses. And Fawny Willis has had enough as the Fulton County D.A. And she has filed a motion today to revoke his bond and send him back to jail where he can sit in the Wright Street jail right next to the courthouse from now until his trial, maybe in 2024, maybe in 2025. Um, we'll find out. But she's had enough. Her, her hand is under her chin. And it's now time to teach these defendants who are out on bail and bond a lesson. In addition, speaking of Georgia, uh, we now have, based on new filings, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, the mother and daughter team, who uh, are who have not only sued Rudy Giuliani for defamation, but have already won because Rudy Giuliani was found basically in default and a judgment entered against him by the judge in District of Columbia, <coughs> pardon me, Judge Beryl Howell, on defamation and punitive damages. And the only thing left for a trial is going to be how big of a check the jury is going to make Rudy Giuliani right. And we now have the numbers, and the numbers that Rudy, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, these Fulton County election workers who were defamed, accused of, uh, uh, of voter fraud when they were doing nothing of the kind, they were just doing their civic duty, is somewhere between 15 and $43 million, which I know what little I know about Rudy Giuliani's finances, he doesn't have all of that money, but they will take everything that he does have, including his apartment in New York and his, and his condo near Mar-a-Lago in Florida and everything else. So <laughs> that was that's the quick update. Let's go to um, the event today, Karen. You had a chance, as I did, but well, you take the lead, on the hearing on the emergency motion for protective order filed by Fawny Willis because a whole bunch of proffer videos of Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis and the bail bondsmen, as I like to call them, were leaked. You know, these hour-long videos of the of the testimony they gave to the state attorney in order to support their case and to get their plea deal was leaked to, to the media. At the time, we were like, who leaked these? I mean, they're goldmine for us. We got to talk about them. Who leaked them and why? And it, we learned today in the course of that hour-long hearing. Why don't you tell everybody, Karen, out there what happened at the hearing and, and what, was, uh, what was the confession that was made during it? Sure, I would be happy to, but I want to go back to something you talked about just now, which is how Fonnie Willis asked the court to revoke the bond of um, Mr. Sure. Floyd, um, only because this one really, really just gets under my skin. Because when you read the reasons Fonnie Willis asked that his bond be revoked, so really what she's saying is, this is a defendant who's out on bond or bail, meaning he has paid a certain amount of money to go to be allowed to go out with certain restrictions. And those restrictions are, and there's always like different ones for different people, you know, and, and whatever they are here, the restrictions are basically you can't threaten witnesses, you can't attack them, and you can't do inappropriate things on social media. And then in her motion, she cites to the various social media postings that she said, 
violate his conditions, right? Things about threatening witnesses where he says things like, it's over. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger needs to call his lawyer. He's about to go through some things or things like, you know, just going on and on, right? Different things. Um, and at one point, there's even, a, you know, we have to shout out to Midas Touch. There's even a, a Midas Touch um, posting here where it says, you know, during her proper session before Georgia prosecutors, Jen Ellis, if you can see it, it's great, right? I love that Midas Touch is, is making its way into uh, DA Bonnie Willis's motion uh, papers on page eight. But really what upsets me about this and what gets me gets under my skin about this is it shows the way Donald Trump is being treated differently than everybody else and every other defendant because what he does is just as bad if not worse than what Mr. Floyd does and but somehow nobody puts him in nobody incarcerates him they just not only that we're fighting over gag orders because he can't be stopped and so if he's going to be out there saying things like you know, if I'm if I'm going to come, if you come in after me, I'm coming after you. He's setting the tone. You can't put the lower level guy in the, in jail or in prison waiting trial. And Donald Trump continues to get away with it. There are two tiers of justice, you know, in this country, but not in the direction Donald Trump talks about. And so this really, really bothers me that um, that it just demonstrates how he is once again just getting away with things that nobody else would get away with. Because, of course, Mr. Floyd should be put in for doing this. So would every other defendant who would ever do something like this. That's exactly what a judge would do and should do. But the fact that we're not doing doing it with Donald Trump just really, it just shows to me how somehow he is being treated differently uh, than everybody else. And that's just not right. And if I were a judge, I, I don't know that I would do one and not the other, especially if the one that I'd be doing is a much lower level person in all of this, right? Donald Trump is the ringleader. He's the boss. And so they really... I think, and I know everybody is afraid to put Donald Trump in, you know, put him in, but he's not stopping and somebody has to stop him because lives are in danger as a result of what he does. And, and Mr. Floyd is doing nothing more than uh, following the lead of his ringleader, um, Donald Trump. So I just wanted to, to comment yeah. on that. The interesting thing is that Donald Trump doesn't bash the people that are necessarily the Georgia witnesses. He stays relatively quiet. He only bat because of McAfee. He only bashes the uh, in places where he knows he can get away with it until until he can't, which is the Democratic judges like Chutkin and Goron, you know, Judge Mershon up in New York, or the one, <clears throat> you know, the one that he thinks he's got in his back pocket, Judge Cannon. We'll talk about um, uh, in another time in down in Florida. He really hasn't. You know, surprisingly, even though there is a gag order per se by Judge McAfee about intimidating witnesses or, or making comments about witnesses. And remember, McAfee's already decided to make, I think, all the trials there anonymous, mainly because of Donald Trump. I mean um, the jurors. I'm, I'm sorry, all the jurors down there anonymous, mainly because of Donald Trump. Um, it, it's amazing how quiet Donald Trump is and does and does very little, does no bashing of McAfee as a judge and doesn't really go after the other the other potential witnesses like, you know, if this was in New York and Powell and Jenna Ellis's leaked things came out, you would see crack pot, Sidney Powell, crack pot, Jenna Ellis, uh, corrupt right wing racist vermin. Uh, he doesn't do that in Georgia, which is very interesting. One of the reasons I don't think he does it in Georgia is because 
um, he's there is a real fear that that is a place where he could get convicted at some point and not be able to have a pardon from a Republican president. I'm not sure he can self-pardon. We'll leave that for another day. But let's um, let's keep going. Sorry, we'll go back to the. the well, let's, no, let's keep going on Georgia and talk about um, you know do a quick summary of. Uh, the motion for protective order emergency, the hearing particularly that already happened today and what we learned from the hearing um, and, and how Judge McAfee runs the courtroom. Yeah, so so Fannie Willis turned over discovery, which is um, witness statements essentially that she has in all forms and she turned it over to the remaining 14 defense attorneys like she's supposed to do and uh, there were some what they were called unauthorized leaks from uh, I think it was ABC first and then the Washington Post and now it's everywhere from at the time an unknown source and Fonnie Willis did an emergency application to, um, for a protective order and she said it must be one of the defense attorneys who leaked and these um, she was very disappointed by this and by, by filing an emergency order, she got a hearing on a much on a fast pace, which happened the next day. So today there was a broadcast hearing that um, we all could watch where the, the, all the defense attorneys were present and um, and it was via Zoom and it was on whether or not there should be a protective order. Now, there was an application for a protective order previously by Bonnie Willis on the discovery, but uh, Judge McAfee did not rule on it. So by releasing this information, I don't think it was a violation of anything because there was no order in place. Um, and so what Bonnie Willis was asking for was for a protective order because she what she said was there's no reason to be leaking this other than to intimidate witnesses right that that's that's what will happen and not only that there will be inappropriate information that is out there uh, in in the public realm and the reason it's inappropriate and, and basically what was leaked were were video recordings of the proffer sessions or of the or of the conversations between prosecutors and the defendants who have now pled guilty and are cooperating. So what the prosecutors did in and and this is done in certain jurisdictions and in certain cases is they put them under oath, made them swear to tell the truth, and asked them questions and videotaped it so that there's a record for all time of what they have said. And it normally those, those video recordings, those would be considered hearsay at trial because they are out-of-court statements being offered for the truth of the matter asserted. They are just pure hearsay. And so those typically wouldn't come in to evidence. So why would you record them? You would record them because if they change their testimony later, you can confront them with it because it's under oath. You can cross-examine them with it. And so and and so it's a it's a good re you do it for a reason, right? You you preserve their testimony for a reason and it's a good thing that you did it. But Fonnie Willis is upset that it was released because because there are at, when when you go to trial when you ask questions, there are lots of objections, right? And the judge may or may not allow certain information in. But if that information is already shown to the public and out there and the jury knows about it, juries, you run the risk of a jury considering extraneous evidence in the jury box, which they're not allowed to do. They're only allowed to consider the evidence that's before them. And so as a prosecutor, you want to do everything you can to prevent this all this information to come out so that you don't somehow 
poison your jury pool. You don't make it harder to pick juries. And, you know, you just, you don't want to, it's just not a good thing to have information out there that might not ever come in at trial. So, so she did the right thing by asking for a protective order and for asking for one on an emergency basis. Her protective order that she asked for was a limited one. It wasn't just for all discovery. It was for things that are sensitive or have personal identifying information or confidential business records, the proffer videos, that kind of stuff. Um, most of the defense attorneys said, we don't think that, and, and McAfee, who every time I see him, I'm more and more impressed with him. I think he's an excellent judge. Uh, I like the way he, you know, he, he's, he's not at all intemperate. You know, he, 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 he's very much respectful, smart, knows the law gives people a chance to speak, um, but is completely in control. He's, he's kind of exactly what you want a judge to be, frankly. Um, most of the judges, most of the defense attorneys, and he went one by one to ask them. Most of them said, you know, look, judge, we don't think a protective order is necessary, but if one is, uh, then we consent to the one that Bonnie Willis has proposed and will abide by it because it is narrowly tailored, right? It isn't, she's not just saying everything we think it's as reasonable. And, you know, as a lawyer, why fight about everything, right? When you can, you want to show you're reasonable too to a judge, so that somehow they'll they'll give you certain things too. So that that sort of seemed like what was going on there. You know, every once in a while, you you'd have a defense attorney um, say something like, you know, like. Um, this isn't necessary because X, Y, and Z. And if it's wrong, what they're saying, the judge corrects them. You know, he's like, well, you're not, you know, it's not exactly true because that's already taken care of. Like he made sure that the record was absolutely correct. And I love that he did that. Um, and then we get to the defense attorney who for Mr. Miller, for Misty Hampton and you know, because I, I, we just thought, I thought this was just going to be a, okay, judge, okay, judge, no problem. You know, one by one, they were saying, we don't object. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. But this one was a little bit, I don't want to say dramatic, but he, it was like, you know, it was like he confessed, you know, he said, um, he basically said, you know, I, I, I want to be transparent with the court so nobody else is blamed. You know, he said, he said, first of all, there, this is not necessary and I won't consent. So that was your first hint that he was going to be a little bit different from the rest of the pack. But he said, but you know, I, I um, but I want to be transparent with the court so nobody else gets blamed for this. I did it. I released the videos to one outlet <laughs> and, you know, he's like, I did it because the four people who did the proffers who stood in front of you, judge, they pled guilty and to hide these proffers to show all that went into the plea is misleading. Uh, and it misleads the public about what goes on. And two people actually helped my client and the public needs to know that. So, you know, please, keep that into consideration. And Judge McAfee shot him down and said, this isn't a trial that the American people, this isn't a, a trial that you do, you know, it's not a trial of public opinion, basically, you know, and he, he said to him at one point, that's a good slogan, you know, um, that the public has a right to know, but we have is there any case law that says that pre-trial discovery should be part of the public record? And he's like, no, you know, that's not, that, that doesn't exist. Um, anyway, it was just, it was the way he kind of, the way McAfee did it was basically like, look, this is supposed to be a trial in the court of law, not a trial of court, court of opinion. Nice slogan. Um, but he didn't yell at him or say anything. He just kind of said, you know, he, he just sort of held his feet to the fire a little bit. But then we got to, it was interesting, um, there was a lawyer for media organizations who they did not want a protective order because, you know, look, they like uh, this, they like these 
these leaks, frankly. And that, that was an interesting legal back and forth about what the law is there and the 11th Circuit law about there's no public right to discovery and back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, the press, you know, they really, really want it. And, um, and so I thought that was also a very interesting back and forth. And the judge said he's going to rule, I think, tomorrow on this. I, I think there's, you know, at one point the judge 